All right. Hey, how's everybody doing? I'm Riley. <laughs> I don't know any of you other than, yeah, I'm Nick's brother. Yeah, a couple things, actually. What's your name? Yeah. Dave, a couple things, Dave, that, that are important for you to know. One is I'm Nick's brother. That shall be my identity for the weekend. Um, but no, a, a, a couple things. Um, Justin asked me to come up and hang out with you guys for the weekend, which I'm really excited about. Uh, I was with Justin when we started this church several years ago. And uh, seven years ago? Yeah, that's awesome. And um, so I was there at the beginning, and I love Calvary the Hill. And uh, Justin pretty much trained me up as a, as a pastor. And uh, so I owe a lot to Justin for giving me chances to preach. Like right in the, my first time preaching was uh, at Cap Hill. Uh, but Justin, when we used to work together at Calvary Fellowship, Justin was the guy... This might surprise you or not surprise you, but Justin was the guy where if you were walking in the hall together and he was at the end of the hall, he would just start sprinting at you and then, sho- and then shove you. Just a troll from the beginning. No, no. Just me. Okay, there, there you go. So that's surprising. Most of you guys are like, I never knew Justin ran. Um, <laughs> just joking. Um, yeah, so thanks for having me. Love being here. I want us to uh, grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. And uh, my message I'm calling, When God Stirs Our Spirit. When God Stirs Our Spirit, which I know sounds like a meme, but it's not. Um, when God stirs our spirit. Okay, so driving over here, where are we? Close to Yakima? Easton? Easton, Washington. I was, my, my wife was on the phone talking to some friends going, yeah, I'm going to Easton, Washington. They're like, why are you talking like that? It's Eastern Washington. I know it sounds like she had some kind of speech impediment. Easton, Washington. Um, so while we were driving here today, I was reminded of a road trip that I took with my kids a couple months ago. Spring break, um, we, we decided to drive, like last minute we decided to drive Sunday, uh, Monday morning, 7 a.m., and get in the car, me, three kids, and my wife. My kids are five, three, and one. So we violated all the parenting commandments by going on a 18-hour road trip straight. I drove the entire way straight. Uh, whole pack of Red Bulls, ton of LaCroix, um, a lot of bathroom breaks with no break, just rush in, fill up with gas and rush out. But we did it and it was intense. But on the way, we, we stopped twice for a picnic and the, the second place we stopped was in Greenhorn, California, which is Northern California. It's uh, uh, Eureka, I think is the town there. Okay, so this is like a gold rush town. And um, so you can go there. So we, we did a picnic by a lake called Lake Greenhorn. And there, next to the lake, is this old mining facility with a mine. So they had, like, the tracks leading into the mountain and the hole where the mine started. But it, it had since collapsed. And uh, this mine was founded in the 1840s. And it was during, during the gold rush. I mean, the height of it, I guess, was 1850. 
And so th- they let you like climb on this equipment. This equipment is like huge. It's like they they would mine stuff and they, it would go down this track and like get, all this machinery was still there and it was all rusted over. They even had a big old mine cart and we climbed in it. It felt like we were in Donkey Kong country and uh, it was great. And uh, worst levels in the world, right? Um, but anyway, so we were playing there with my kids. And uh, I was teaching them about mining, trying to help them avoid getting, uh, needing a tetanus shot later on, because they were seriously like rusty nails everywhere. It's like, why is this legal? I, I don't understand. So I was reading about the town, which came to be as a result of the gold rush in the 1850s, around the Civil War era, where guys would find gold one day. This one guy found gold in that riverbank. And that day, he made $7,000, which back then is a lot of money. And he, and, and right after that, like, people just rushed from, like, eastern United States to Greenhorn. Like, the gold rush was intense. People just picked up everything and just moved across the country with the hope, the chance, the vision of something ahead, possibly striking it rich uh, in the gold rush. And I just thought, man, that would be a road trip, especially if you had five-year-old, three-year-old, and one-year-old. I mean, that's way worse than the iPad running out of batteries. Like, that's an intense trip. Um, Ezra is like a big, long road trip where God's people are picking up everything. They've been in exile for decades, and they're, they're now free to go. And they're, they're getting ready to up leave their life behind, and head home, all in response to God stirring them up. So here's the theme for this weekend that I kind of want to pursue for us, is as we kind of go on this road trip with God's people, as we work through the story a little bit, or at least the beginning of the story, my hope is that we would be moved by the Lord in a similar kind of way that they are that God would stir us up to perhaps at least be willing to step out and go on our own journey. And whatever that might look like for each of us, because when God stirs us up, He calls us to something that we don't know what it might look like ahead, but it's always going to be great. It's always going to be better. It's always going to be us striking it rich. And so the hope is that as we do this, I want to kind of end each message tonight, um, tomorrow, twice, end each message by just giving us a really simple prayer, really simple, like one line, and just hoping that you could either write it down, take it with you, maybe mull it over, pray, pray it yourself with the hope that God would stir us up. So let's look at Ezra, because this is where the story begins. Look at Ezra chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Let's pause there because we need some context. We need some context. See, several decades before this, God's people and God's land, you know, the land of Israel, the whole kingdom had been sacked, 
seized and raised to the ground by a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And so after that, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, uh, decimated the land, and took a ton of the people captive and brought them back to his country, to to the empire of Babylon. Think of guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys were kidnapped and brought to the place of Babylon. Um... And in the, in the process, uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually destroyed the temple. And that was the biggest blow. That was a, a wound that cut so deep it cut down to the national identity of God's people. To lose the place of worship and sacrifice to the God, to, to, to Yahweh. That was utter, that was bewildering. It was ruin for God's people. And so they had no concept anymore of their, their identity, their central place of worship was gone. And now they're being carted off in a foreign land. They, they're exiles. They're in exile. Now, in the middle of that time, as these things were unfolding, there was a man named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a prophet, and he had a message of hope. In the midst of this whole thing for God's people, he had this message. And part of his message was, hey, I know things look pretty bad. They are pretty bad. But look, in a certain amount of time, Jeremiah called it 70 years. Jeremiah said, in 70 years, we will be set free again. In 70 years, God will bring us back to our homeland. And so while God's people were in exile, they held on to this hope. They held on to the word of Jeremiah. Look again at verse 1. He says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This is it. This is the moment where God's message of hope through Jeremiah comes true. Here is when the Jews can finally return to their homeland. Now, how does that look? How does it actually come to be? Look there where it says, so so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. It says, quote, the Lord stirred up the spirit. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. This means that Cyrus's proclamation, this emancipation, is a result of God stirring him up. It's a result of God working in his heart, which means that far away from God's land, far away from Israel, long before this proclamation even took place, in the heart of a pagan king who didn't even know God, God was working. Because God's work starts with God stirring us up. And this happens before we're aware. And sometimes it happens in people who are unaware that God even exists. In other words, God's work, God's stirring, God's movement, if we are to listen to God, be stirred by God, do what God wants us to do, it must begin with Him. It begins with Him stirring up our hearts. So, how does this play out? Verse 2, read it with me. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, 
has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all His people, may His God be with Him. And let Him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now it sounds a lot like Cyrus is a worshiper of Yahweh at this point. It's like, yeah, God's called me to build him a temple. Like, let's do this. It sounds a lot like Cyrus is a worshiper like as if he's, a, he's on the Jewish side of things. But that's actually not how things actually are. This, in fact, is Cyrus's foreign policy. Uh, what we now know historically, uh, we call it the Edict of Cyrus. We have found this same proclamation in different lands, along, uh, kind of scattered out the, the ancient nation of Persia, different lands where Cyrus is essentially saying, hey, All y'all people who were our captives, who were in exile, you're free to go. You can leave. You can go home, build your temple, worship your gods. This was Cyrus' foreign policy. The idea is that happy subjects equals a powerful empire. Cyrus wants the Jews to return home, build their temple, worship their gods. Yeah, because a, a thriving economy in Palestine would mean more taxes. And this is wildly different than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was like taking everybody captive, making them do what he wanted. Uh, Cyrus was very, uh, you could say, benevolent. So this is his foreign policy. Now, two things that he allows here in the midst of this um, proclamation, the edict of Cyrus. Two things. First, in verse 3, he says, whoever is among you, who wants to return home, go. You're free to go. Go there and rebuild the temple. Rebuild the house of the Lord. He says, if you want to leave, you're free to do it. Then he says, secondly, in verse 4, he says, men of this place, if you're a survivor, um, if you don't want to leave, if you want to stay behind, you must help. You must assist you must contribute, donate uh, silver, gold, um, go on the Go GoFundMe page and click donate, you know, give free will offerings. In other words, two things happen out of this. Some leave to go rebuild God's house, but some stay behind and decide instead to help, to donate, to contribute. So God is, what we've seen then is God is stirring in the king, in Cyrus, to tell God's people to go do what God's people wanted all along to fulfill the word of the Lord that had come several decades earlier. It's an amazing, amazing story. So, verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. There we have it again in verse 5. We have that same phrase. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred. 
God began this whole thing by stirring in the, in the heart of a king, a distant king, a pagan king, who didn't know God at all. And now He's stirring again in the heads of the Father's houses. So those who respond to the call, who pick up everything, leave Babylonia, and return to their homeland, they are the ones whom God has stirred up. And two observations out of this. First, what they are responding to is only a vision. It's not a reality. Not yet, anyways. Right? There's no pitch. There's no representative from the homeland. There's no commercials. There's no sandals uh, resort that comes and talks about how great it is over in, in Israel. No, it's all theoretical at this point. It's a vision. It's an idea. Not a reality yet. And so people are picking up and leaving everything to go home to a very uncertain future, which is why it is so important to remember that God's work begins with Him stirring the heart. It must start with Him. Because if it were up to us, we would want something certain. We would want it, I would imagine, we would want to know for a fact that things are going to work out. But if we're to do the work of the Lord, He stirs us and gives us a vision that may or may not be a reality yet. But it's something that He wants us to do. He wants us to make into a reality. But it's risky. We don't know all the answers. They don't know all the answers at this point. And as I'm reading the story, I kind of think, would I go? Would I pick up everything and leave? Because here's the thing. They might be in exile in Babylonia, but they're not slaves. Like Things are fairly comfortable. At least they're certain. The economy is good, like you could get a job. Uh, the Jewish mind was, you know, fair, we, we think it was pretty um, well received. There were places of occupation, and they were doing their best to preserve their culture, preserve their people, and, you know, treatment is fair. And on top of that, to pick up everything and leave would take months. A months-long journey across the desert that would be totally uncertain, totally arduous, completely... You wouldn't even know what you might face. Really dangerous. Would I go? I don't even know. The second observation here that I see is that the group who makes this trip is composed of individuals. Individuals whom God is stirring individually. Okay, look again at verse, at verse 5 where it says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses. Right? These are men, leaders in, in the land who, who were leading their families. These are just dads, essentially. Tribal leaders of these three tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, where the Levites come from. These are individuals who felt that tug of God's Spirit in them, uh, stirring them, moving them. And they, individually, they chose, yes, I'm going to respond to what God is telling me to do. It's made up of individuals who decide to go and who make up the group. Now, not everyone who, who sensed God's call um, actually picked up everything and left. Because some people decided to stay behind. You, you see that in verse 6 where it was like, and all who were about them aided them you know, by donating things, silver, gold, and, and, and the like. 
So not everybody who responds to God moving actually leaves everything. You see that there's multiple ways to contribute to what God is is asking them to do. You know, some might not want to make the trek yet. Maybe they have kids in a good public school and they don't want to change districts. Or they just bought a house in Seattle and their property tax just changed and and they got a good job and they don't want to risk, you know, messing up. You know, I'm joking, but seriously, it's crazy out there. (laughs) But these individuals, each of them decides in their own life to respond. And as they all come together, that's when God can begin to do the work. So it's made of individuals. God's work starts, we see this, it starts with Him stirring and it ends with Him stirring from beginning to end. It's God at work in the lives of His people, moving them to do what He wants them to do. It starts with God. Now, who ends up making the trek? I want you guys to just turn the page. Skip to uh, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel. He's like the leader of the thing. Jeshua, who's like the high priest. Nehemiah, who's different than the Nehemiah of the Bible. Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvai, Rehum, and Baana, and I'm going to spare us the rest. Just read the last verse of chapter 2, verse 70, real quick. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all of the rest of Israel in their towns. All told, about 50,000 people, 50,000 people pick everything up, leave, make the months-long trek, the dangerous journey back to their homeland, and they settle once again in Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. The story is being set up, and as we'll see, the story doesn't really pick up until chapter 3 because this whole project up to this point is, is really theoretical. It's just a vision. It's just an idea. And so we have to see, well, the story will you know, keep going, and we'll find out how do God's people actually accomplish the mission. We'll find out tomorrow. But here's what I want to do. I just want to make a few observations from this story. Because if God is to move in our lives, it's a lot like embarking on a long road trip. It's a lot like stepping out into what's uncertain and saying yes to God. I I want to respond even though I don't know what it would look like. Even though I don't know what it will take. Even though I don't know if it'll even, it'll even pan out. You're embarking on something with the Lord leading the way. And there's things we can take away from this. I, I said I went on a road trip a couple months ago, spring break. Now, we left at 7 a.m. and piled all the kids in. And by the time we actually drove out of the parking lot, it was 7.30 that really bothered me because according to Apple Maps, it said I would get there at midnight. 
And I wanted to get there before midnight. And so I was determined to get there, like by 11.30, make up for lost time. So we leave, and we get on the freeway, and we go, and we pass downtown Seattle through the traffic. We, we, we go through Fife and the car dealerships and the casinos, and we finally pass the Tacoma Dome, and there's the Tacoma Dome on my right, and I go, hey, bye, Tacoma Dome, and we pass it, and we go into Olympia, and we're making really good time, and I'm seeing the time, you know, one minute at a time, lesson, it's like 11.58, I'm like, all right, at this rate, like, we could really save some time, so we made a pit stop for gas just south of Olympia, we pull in, and I get gas. My kids are like, oh, I'm tired. And I just want to, I need to go to the bathroom. I no bathroom breaks. I'm filling up with gas, and we're getting back on the freeway. We are going to get there before midnight. So we get back in the car, and I get back on the freeway, and I just blaze. I may or may not have been going 90 miles an hour the whole time. So we're driving. I'm just blazing. I'm making some good time. But the time is not the same. Now it says I'm going to get there at 12.15. And I don't know why. Then I start to see the landscape around me is looking really familiar. And then I'm like, didn't I pass the Tacoma Dome already? And I could have sworn that the Tacoma Dome was on your right when you're going south. Oh my gosh. I just drove 45 minutes in the wrong direction. It was like that scene from Dumb and Dumber. You drove halfway across the country in the wrong direction. Oh my gosh, my wife still to this day, even today, was making fun of me about it. Turned around, said I would get there like 45 minutes times two, right? So it was like 1.30 a.m. Uh, according to maps. Now, I actually, we actually rolled in at 1 a.m., so like I totally redeemed myself. <laughs> It's uncertain when you step out and when you're going on a journey with the Lord and when you're making decisions in response to His dynamic call in your life, there's twists and turns. There's unknowns. There's things that you might not have anticipated. But in the end, the destination you know to be better than your current circumstance. Because when God stirs us up and He moves us and He... He shows us the way, we do so not knowing exactly what's ahead. We do so not because He's shown us all the answers, but because He has moved us. Because He has stirred our spirit. And I believe, I believe that God is in the middle of stirring some of us. Stirring some of you guys. He's already begun the stirring work where He's moving in you, showing you things, and maybe um, giving you a heart for things, a burden for things. Many of those of us who are listening to Him in prayer and tuned in to what He might want and what might be ahead, yet, at the same time, I believe that if we collectively are to succeed as God's people, we all need to be stirred up in our spirit. Every single person. We need us all to be stirred up if we are to accomplish what the Lord wants us to do. That goes for my church, uh, your church, 
our churches, God's people worldwide, it's true that we all need to be stirred up if the mission is to be accomplished. I think that like God's people in the book of Ezra, in the story, you might be in your own sort of road trip. You might sense a calling on your life, or you might simply be entering into a new season of your life or you are gearing up for some kind of change, or maybe in your life you know there needs to be some kind of a change. And you're sensing things that need to happen. You're praying, you're asking, you're wanting, you're desiring the Lord to move in you, stir in you, and give you a new vision for what's to come. And like them, we all, each one of us has an overarching mission that's commissioned to us by Jesus to build something for the kingdom of God, to obey God, to bring the goodness of the Lord, to bring His justice and His mercy and His love to those around us. So, it is absolutely crucial for us, each of us, to be stirred up in our spirit. Now, I said that the group is made of individuals. That cannot be overstated. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. When he's talking about revival, he says, quote, I see no hope for revival until individual members of the church are praying. There is no hope until we do, but the moment we do, hope enters. Let us heed Martin Lloyd-Jones' advice. His, his exhortation that for us to be the strongest, we need to be all together in this. Now, there are many ways to contribute. We saw this in the story, right? Not everybody made the trek home. And there's, in the story, there's no judgment laid on anybody who doesn't leave and go. Um, some people remain behind. Maybe they got a one-and-a-half-year-old and you know that it's tough to move. Or then you know that it's tough to do anything with a one-and-a-half-year-old, right? You guys know. And, uh, right, with a baby, it's, there's no judgment on anybody in their life situation. There are, there are many ways to contribute to what God is doing. Not everybody will be a pastor or some sort of prominent ministry leader type person. There are many ways to partner in what God is doing. When, when any of us gives of our time or represents Jesus in our place of work or where we show love or we express devotion to the Lord, when we simply pray or give, these are ways that we contribute in the variety that God uses us in. Now I want to leave us with four things that we are praying for. If we're to pray and and just ask the Lord to stir us up. There are four things that come with that, okay? You can write these down if you want. The first thing that comes when God stirs you is energy. Energy. Now, the word for stir up there in the Hebrew is the word hayir. Hayir literally means to provoke or arouse, like to jostle. Like to stir up means like, hey, hey, wake up or to set your alarm. That's to be stirred up. To be awoken. To have remained dormant and then get jostled awake. 
to be poked, provoked, prodded, and, and, and moved in our spirit. And the word for spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, which literally means breath. But in the Hebrew mind, the breath, you know, breath was symbolic of your life. There's something inside you that's coming in and out as you inhale and exhale. So to be stirred up in your spirit is to be provoked, aroused, and jostled in your life. To be stirred up deep, to be moved in your inner being, and to be given a new sense of energy, urgency, willingness, aliveness, animation. Here's the idea. We are praying that God would poke and provo- provoke and prod, prod us, set the alarm clock on the dormant pieces of us so that we could be aroused with a new sense of energy because only those whom God has stirred within them can make a stir around them. Only when God has stirred within you can you make a stir around you? So we're, we're asking the Lord for energy. Secondly, we're hoping for a new sense of purpose. Now this is that direction, that vision that I was talking about. We're praying and asking the Lord to give us a sense of purpose. Because when God stirs up your spirit, it puts you in the right direction. He gives you momentum, a trajectory, a purpose to live for. It's in that direction that we walk, even though we don't have the answers, right? We don't know exactly what's ahead, but we know generally the direction in which we walk. God will stir our spirits before He answers our questions. So we're praying that God would give us a new sense of purpose and direction. Third, third, we're asking the Lord for a new sense of community community, when God stirs up your spirit and when He points you in the, in the right direction, it comes with it a people. A people coming together for this common purpose. People to surround and to support each other. And this group of people is made up of individuals who each of us are responding to the Lord and the movement of God uh, in and of ourselves. And that brings us together. Because at the end of the day, what God wants to do in this world, His mission for this world and His mission for His church is a collective mission. It's a communal thing. God stirs us by stirring you. That's Him stirring us. When when you sense the Lord moving in your own life, that's Him stirring up His church worldwide. So we're praying that God would stir stir up each of us to play our unique part in this. And then lastly, fourth, we're asking for choice. Choice. A a decision to be made. Action to be taken. God's stirring should change us and result in action. When God stirs up the Spirit and points us in the right direction, when He puts us in a a community to, to be with, to be supported by we are then left with the decision. Should we stay or should we go? Should we be part of what God is doing? Should we say yes or should we say no? I do think, I I do kind of, as I'm reading the story, I I let my imagination kind of 
fill in the gaps of the story when I read the scripture. But I totally imagine the families, the heads of the households, right? Those working class people, the mothers, the fathers, the men and women, those who have made a name for themselves in Babylon, right? those who have mortgages, those who have kids in school, those who have their routines and their comfort zones, their friend groups and their inner circles, those who have already worked their way to the top, those who have accomplished so much, those who have so much to lose. It was some of those people who chose to leave it all behind and say yes to the Lord. May we be a church that chooses to respond when He stirs us in our spirit. Here's the prayer. Matt, do you want to, are we doing worship at the end or are we one song? Okay, cool. Let's do this. Before we go to worship, I want to invite us all to stand together. And we're going to take a posture of prayer here. I don't want to lead us in a real simple prayer as Matt gets ready to do a song of worship. Let's take this prayer with us. Make this maybe our posture, our theme for the, for the weekend. So let's all close our eyes and bow our heads. And, and here's our prayer for tonight. It's this. Go ahead and uh, take this in. Pray it to yourself. Here's the prayer. Dear God, stir our spirit. Start with me. Amen. Now, Psalm 40, verse 1, says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and then He turned and heard my cry. And so sometimes when we're in prayer, there's, there's moments of waiting. Moments of silence, moments of receiving and, and asking before God actually answers. I think that some of us, when we pray these things or talk about these things, we can actually doubt that God would move us at all. Or we, we could maybe doubt that, that we have anything to contribute or even that we believe God can move in us at all. So that can, that can be part of the prayer, right? If, if you want God to stir you, if you want this, this dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit to be evident and real in your life, that can be part of it. Make the doubt part of it. And then some of us, I think, already sense the Lord stirring in us. And we just need greater, cons- uh, greater counsel on it, greater thinking on it, and, and greater clarity on it. So whether you are desiring God to stir your heart or, or you are already sensing God stirring up within you, let's all be praying as we worship and, and go tonight. God, stir our spirit. Start with me. Amen. Jesus.